This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, the famed anthropologist Arjuna Patarai joins me to talk about the current pandemic and its impacts on globalization and education. We were supposed to speak in March at a live event during the annual conference of the Comparative and International Education Society, which was going to be held in Miami. But like most things in life, the pandemic got in the way. This is the situation where the global is really forcing people into a kind of hyperlocalization, which is to say a kind of self-quarantining, whether the national level, the city level, or the family and personal level. So there's a push by the virus, which is the most global of all things, to push to place everyone in the smallest possible circle of interaction. So there's a kind of inversion of the global going on, which is, I think, not the case with other kinds of challenges to the global. And the, the, the most salient level, I would say, is the nation state, the, the, the new priority on checking borders, airports, and so on, with renewed vigor, even in very liberal societies. In our conversation today, Arjun thinks through the pandemic using some of the ideas for which he's most known, including the scapes of globalization. He also talks about his newest book, published last year, entitled Failure, which was co-written with Netta Alexander. You know, we'll raise this question. What failed here? Was it just a few people? Was it our whole government? Was it our whole approach to public health? I mean, there'll have to be some reckoning. So I do think these wages of different kinds, some of which are lunatic, like Trump's, uh, you know, chloroquine or this thing or that thing and then bleach and UV, you know, these are all examples to me of a kind of something approaching a death cultish extreme response. Stay tuned until the end of our conversation because Arjun gives us a peek into some of his newest thinking on ideas not yet published. Arjuna Paderai is a professor at New York University and at the Hertie School in Berlin. He is also a member of the UNESCO Futures Commission. Arjuna Paderai, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will. When did you realize that this novel coronavirus was going to actually change daily life, and particularly your daily life? I would say sometime in early March, although my Uh, recollection is a bit blurred because it was a kind of continuous process of concern followed by seeing news, followed by hearing things from the Berlin and German authorities. I think it all fell into place when uh, the German government, both the federal government and the Berlin government, began to uh, put us all on alert about potential lockdown. And then that happened. So I would say seven weeks or eight, six has been the total lockdown, but seven or eight, we knew something was happening, which was not routine. Mm, Right. And so, you know, how are you coping? How has life changed for you over these last seven or eight weeks? Well, I'll tell you, it's a it's a mixed thing because I tend to have a, a kind of bipolar existence where I'm either traveling you know, near or far, or I'm in Berlin. And in that case, I like to stick very close to home. So I'm in a kind of uh, pendulum between very close to home and away as in traveling for professional purposes. So when I'm here, I don't have, you know, a very active life outside my apartment and home, uh, except to shop or 
to do a chore, but I don't hang out in public places by more or less by habit, choice, and personality, and a certain amount of domestic issues like food production, childcare, and so on. But I tend, in other words, to stick to home when I'm not traveling. Consequently, from that point of view, this has not been a the kind of trauma that it has been for people who are very active outside lives on a daily basis. That said, uh, both for my wife and myself, you know, being responsible more or less 24-7 for our six-year-old is uh, a, a new for us. We've had some experience of being with him for extended periods, but not locked in. So like many, many parents, we are working very hard to find the creative resources to keep him occupied and to keep him from feeling more than he might already feel, the sense that something is off. And I think that effort has repaid itself because so far as we can tell, he is, uh, our son is doing uh, very well, but that takes something new by way of uh, investment. But when I'm in touch with people by email and so on, it's really evident that there is a a new world already in place uh, of fears, worries, inequities, inequalities, problems of access, and so on, on a, a scale vastly larger than my life. So I would say the summary thing I can say is certainly there are things I would love to see happen, which uh, make my life more easier or a little more like it was. But I am above all deeply aware that I'm in a privileged position, not having a full-time job, not needing to go out all the time, having a child rather than three or four, being in a family that actually has two parents rather than as many people do one any number of things that I see that put me, again, I think in a very small, fortunate fraction of the population. So I'm high conscious of that on a daily basis. And so let's talk a little bit about, you know, some world changes as you see them. Um, so go from your own individual life to some, you know, some more general interpretations. And, and I, I thought about this interview thinking about some of your work that you've done over time. Um, I've been a big fan of your work for, for many, many years. And so, you know, you, in my mind, you are foremost a cultural theorist of globalization. And, and many people might associate you with the notion of scapes. You have these five different scapes to think about globalization. The ethnoscape, the technoscape, the finance scape, the media scape, and the idioscape. You know, thinking about these scapes, can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted you know, globalization generally, and maybe in particular, you know, the concept of scapes? Yeah, well, it's clear that this challenge, this crisis, this virus is forcing a lot of reassessments about that process, whether in my perspective or in anybody else's perspective about globalization. Everybody's having to do a rethink. I see or read very few people who say, oh, yeah, we always knew this, we saw this, etc., because they do have to reset the relationship, for example, between local and global things in terms of the speed of movement, the difficulty of identifying which of the flows that we take for granted is possibly a vector, one of the vectors of this dreadful affliction. And I think uh, The biggest single thing that I see, which others have noticed too, is that this is the situation where the global is really forcing people 
into a kind of hyper-localization, which is, say, a kind of self-quarantining, whether at the national level, the city level, or the family and personal level. So there's a push by the virus, which is the most global of all things, to push to place everyone in the smallest possible circle of interaction. So there's a kind of inversion of the global going on, which is, I think, not the case with other kinds of challenges to the global. And the, the, the most salient level, I would say, is the nation state, the, the, the new priority on checking borders, airports, and so on, with renewed vigor, even in very liberal societies, and the xenophobic fear of migrants in general, but of Asians in particular, Chinese even more in particular. All this is at odds with what globalization was supposed to deliver, accomplish, and bring. Now, the xenophobia side, we've always seen as a kind of dark side, but this business of cutting down on contact and the flow of goods, being suspicious of every aspect of our every aspect of our connectivity. That's I would say the biggest new fact that someone like myself has to deal with. And what I see is in fact that there's a kind of strange relationship between what we may call the the local, which could be the national or the regional or the urban city-based perspective or scape about this virus and how it works and where it moves, and the flow of information, which is somehow from outside that perspective. What do you mean about that? Meaning that flows of information which have nothing to do with my perspective, say in Berlin, because they come from you know the US or they come from the UK or they come from India, scientists there, uh, ordinary people. So there's a flow across my screen of information from all over about the virus, but there's definitely some uh, anchoring for me in my situation, which is by definition embedded in Berlin, therefore in Germany, its leadership, its policies, its rules. For example, when our child could go back to kindergarten. So there you have, I have no choice but to make the best of my situation, the lens from here uh, on statistics and so on. But I'm always seeing uh, views, opinions, trends, analyses from elsewhere. But the other thing I might say that for me, this new crisis points up has two dimensions. One is the deep and radical uncertainty that it presents. What is it? Do we know enough about it? Can there be a vaccine? Do you have symptoms? Do you not have symptoms? which creates a, a kind of suspicion, which is like a, like these 1950s uh, US horror movies where like uh, invasion of the body snatchers, anybody could be infected. They might have symptoms, they might not have, they may look great, they may feel great, but you never know. So that creates a level of doubt and uncertainty about everyone in one's environment, uh, which I think is kind of unprecedented, at least in my in my experience. But the this uncertainty is mostly for those of us who are in the academic world or in the policy world and who are fairly well educated, it takes the form that I see also as compounding uncertainty, which is a new scale in the circulation of statistical and particularly graphic information from any number of sources. And these are the reliable sources. I'm not talking of the tweets and the I'm talking of the serious scientific uh, enterprises or individuals who produce very complex graphic information. England has quite a few sources of 
very high quality, super detailed, live information, country by country, of cases, deaths, proportions, ratios. And many of these are in graphic form that's very hard to follow, much less to interpret and then agree upon. And of course, many of these highly sophisticated numerical forms of information, and I say numerical loosely to mean quantitative as well as graphic, are not uh, in agreement with each other. So we have a crisis about expertise. So in something like climate change, we know there is a big difference of opinion, but on the side of science, there's a high consensus. What's wrong? What's the ozone layer? And so on. we don't have to wonder. With this virus, you know, what's the key number? Is it the deaths? Uh, you know, what's the N? Uh, the R naught. Exactly. Exactly. So that seems to me to produce a kind of challenge, which is also relevant to the work that I'm uh, engaged in with UNESCO through this uh, forum on the futures of education, which was what was going to bring me to Miami and created the link in our conversation. They, of course, are keenly aware that uh, this crisis has big implications for education broadly conceived. And one of my observations to that group has been there are many implications, but the one concerns me is how can we assist both policymakers and ordinary citizens, those who are, who are receiving this information, with some kind of increased and urgent uh, numerical or scientific literacy to make some elementary judgments. Do I need to know this? Is this reasonably accurate? Is it you know, not only useful at any time, for the relationship of science, education, and so on. But when you have these global crises, to me, that's a, a very huge uh, priority because the kind of panic and anxiety is very much produced by this set of debates or differences among experts, which most of us have the capacity to adjudicate. So these are not all connected thoughts, but they're all reactions to how I think about globalization because of this situation. Mm. And it, to me, it connects to your new co-written book, Failure, with Netta Alexander, where you, you conceptualize failure as being, um, or regimes of failure, I should say, as sort of being made up of these collective judgments that produce various emotions. And one of these emotions that I think we're talking about today that you brought up is about doubt. Yes. In this moment of radical uncertainty, there's so much doubt, even about things that previously perhaps we might have not been doubtful about. So like graphs, like numbers, like seeing particular statistics, like trusting certain government agencies to produce reliable data. But now we've sort of come to this point that we're, we're doubting these numbers. Maybe there's too many numbers, too many graphs are coming out too quickly. And so I wonder, you know, in this sense, then, what is where do we see failure? Like, is it a failure of previous education systems? Is it a failure of, of government? Is it a failure of society to have a clear conception of what truth is? I mean, the, there are big questions that I'm not necessarily sure there's an answer to at this point. Well, I think you're right that there it's a conjuncture of all these things. I certainly think there's a long-term problem about the education of citizens, general, ordinary citizens in the workings of high science, especially numerical science, statistical science, probabilistic science, and so on. I realize I have been interested in these things for a very long time. My own grasp is really very limited now in, in relation to what I see and read. So when people don't have the benefit of that kind of education, I can only wonder what they can take away. But the scary part is therefore they have to go somewhere. 
So where do they go? Maybe in a benign way to friends, neighbors, somebody, but in a less benign way to people uh, like Trump, who have zero regard for any form of evidence, data, analysis, skill, expertise, but who are clearly uh, succeeding in communicating some view, even though it appears to come from a profound ignorance as well as bias against every form of science. So people gravitate to those things or they're more local forms of that kind of prejudiced stuff, like these people who are now marching on the state capitals in the U.S. and so on. Well, of course, a fringe, but uh, I will share one thing, which since this is informal, I haven't written about. So it's a kind of uh, preprint exposure of an idea that I haven't worked out, but that I'm thinking that especially with Trump, and especially with that part of his following, which is now ready to be armed and go out in public and essentially argue for a kind of secession, at least from these scientific policies, but possibly secession from their own governors and very serious breakaways. Uh, and in the progressive side, of course, we have California saying we should declare ourselves a nation state. So that's a more progressive thing, saying we can't live with this nightmare skepticism. You know, we, we need to take care of ourselves. But the right wing fringe. To me, whether in the form of the people on these armed and taking out these uh, demonstrations or someone like uh, Mike Pence going to the Mayo Institute without, you know, a mask or any other protection, suggests to me that Trump really, the overall thing, the overall formation that Trump represents is something like Jonestown. It's a death cult or a last me. It's like, I'm going to die, I'm prepared to die, and you need to die with me in the name of whatever. We need to be, we will be free, we will be saved, we will be redeemed, we are right, we are the best, we are, you know, whatever it is. But you must be prepared, whether it's to swallow the Clorox or to not wear a mask or to go out in public, be armed, you know, or, you know, like a famous uh, Waco correctional. But, but the extreme case was Jonestown where the whole group was encouraged to uh, more or less sign on to a collective death. So there's something about Trump and a kind of uh, culturally inflected, personally curated death wish that I think uh, most visible in the case of Trump. But then I wonder worldwide, uh, when you look at India, when you even look at the UK, you know, with the kind of haphazard things, how much there's some kind of new trend or intonation, I would say, towards some form of collectivized death wish, which fits with what this virus does, even to the most sensible of us, which is to create a kind of millenarian feeling, apocalyptic feeling, as in the great work of Norman Cohn, you know, Pursuit of the Millennium, and the subsequent uh, work, which goes back to my book on failure, but which I did not invoke in that book, a great book from, I don't know, 40 or 50 years ago by a very brilliant social psychologist called Leon Festinger, which was called When Prophecies Fail. So what do people do when they think the world is ending tomorrow and it doesn't end? So it's a great book, but I think we are dealing with something in that zone, which is not that we have, you know, a large-scale millennial world going on here. It's not like 2000, you know, when there was a thing that all the clocks would have to be reset and everything would go to hell. This is more, I think, a series of short-term prophetic failures, you know? The thing will go away, only older people will be affected. A series of prophecies that turn out to be bankrupt. Sweden is right in front of this now, still betting on something, which, if it fails, 
you know, will raise this question. What failed here? Was it just a few people? Was it our whole government? Was it our whole approach to public health? I mean, there'll have to be some reckoning. So I do think these wages of different kinds, some of which are lunatic, like Trump's, uh, you know, chloroquine or this thing or that thing and then bleach and UV, you know, these are all examples to me of a kind of something approaching a death cultish extreme response to an intolerable level of uncertainty. And clearly it's not everybody who signs on to this, but the fact that there's any uh, traction for this kind of death-seeking stupidity, and Johnson has shown this early on in the UK, must be because there's some response to the to this vice which elicits reactions which are actually sure to produce a certain amount of death out there, either for yourself or for your followers or for others or for all of you. And Boris Johnson, you know, went there and back. He actually more or less made the, the crossing. So anyway, this is something I'm thinking about and thinking of writing on, which is, of course, not all my, one might say about failure or failure of prophecy. And prophecy, of course, is always something that's also tries to work outside the frame of probability because it's like this will happen. It's not like 80 percent it'll happen. But it has something to do with the failure of our predictions and projections about the future. What COVID is pointing that out, pointing out, is for even the most sober, careful, thoughtful analysts, there is a kind of pressure to predict and even to prophecy. You know, when will this end? And every sensible scientist is saying, "Look, it's very hard to say." In the end, are forced to say something. You know. <laughs> It makes me, I mean, some of the things that surprise me are when I see photos of people on beaches, you know, the, the weather is nice and, and, you know, and these aren't people going to protest government intervention or, you know, they're not necessarily listening to what Trump has to say, but they're still deciding for themselves that, you know, it's a nice day out and I've been inside for 40 days and I'm ready to go out and enjoy the nice weather. And I just, that is what, for me, that's where the failure is sort of most acute. Yes. It's a very tricky point because in the U.S. we have these spring breakers and people like that who are not necessarily protesters, but pretty indifferent to the wider environment. And I'm inclined to think that in some of those cases, it's youth, you know, it just, we won't get, we'll be fine and so on. But in a place like Berlin, which is more sober, there's still, you know, as the weather's changed, people are just pushing against. They're not uh, openly violating, resisting, or protesting, but they're doing more and more things. I mean, I see in my own neighborhood, you know, without masks, walking out, parks, they're pushing. And I think that is a harder thing to understand because it's not, it's nothing extreme about that. It's just a wish both to enjoy the available pleasures and to somehow do a kind of performative creation of a state of affairs, which is not there, but you think that you can make things normal by being normal yourself. Right. But maybe also quarantine fatigue. I think some people are just so exhausted being in home for so long and they're just saying, you know what, I'm going to rebel even in this very little way. Um, but collectively, unfortunately, that can be pretty bad. Or, you know, for self-heal, because I'm so exhausted, I need something. So I totally agree that there are a lot of more humane and human reasons. I am more worried about the less humane, more death-inviting 
These are more people just saying, look, we had it with this. We hope we are safe. We're trying to be safe. We will be careful. We'll observe distance, but we've got to get out. We've, you know, our children need interaction, whatever. So that to me is much more understandable, even if it's also a form of uh, risky behavior. But, you know, as many people know, not just I, things like smoking, you know, where the data has been available forever. You know, people just say, well, you know, it's my right. And yes, I've waited against this and that. And I keep on doing so. If you can do that with known things like smoking, then, you know, something like this is just more dramatic. And of course, you know this, we have this ironic news now that nicotine may be a protective thing. Have you read that? To the to COVID? No, I haven't. Yes, it's been several things. Just look up COVID nicotine cigarettes. Lots of smokers are now actually on my Facebook page are expressing pleasure that they actually didn't give up <laughs> in spite of their wishes to do so because now this may be. So you see irony piles on irony. But, but uncertainty as well, because my first thought was, oh, that must be research coming out of big tobacco, you know, big tobacco backed research. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, we all uh, pick what we like. That's right. <laughs> by way of sources. And of course, these shadowy sources are very good at keeping themselves invisible and just creating, you know, effects, media effects, which in which they are disguised. So if you have any tendency to go in that direction, you'll jump on it and say, great, you see, I have a terrible affliction, but it protects me from an even more terrible affliction. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, the, the sort of weighing of risk is yeah, getting quite perverse. Um, so, you know, all of these different changes that you've we've been encountering over the last seven or eight weeks in lockdown and thinking about failure and and seeing what's happening in your local community and reading about things worldwide. Do you think there's going to be structural change in the world ahead? Well, I generally agree with many of analysts and many thinkers and many opinion makers that there's going to be no normal to return to. That normal is now not the thing to talk about or even to desire. And whether it's because social relations will have eroded, because states will have shown themselves incompetent, whether science will have shown itself inadequate, or all of the above, normal is steadily gone. But the question is, in the new normal, what will be our relationship to full citizenship, to public health, to our perception of remote others, to our view of migrants and borders? And most broadly, to our view of those people who are again at the front line of the suffering, migrants, refugees. In the case of India, the big issue there is not people from outside India, but migrant workers within India who are being shipped out large scale from big cities and be, and facing untold suffering along the way and often never getting to their destinations, being stopped, being also in certain cases, violently attacked by police or by others. These are the people who provide India with its bread and butter. They are not Muslim, they are not, they're just poorer people. And they are taking a, a tremendous beating in terms of access to food, livelihood, desperately trying to go to their home villages, which may or may not be great solutions, but for them are better than the cities in which they are. That is a predicament affecting millions uh, in India today because of the scale of the population. And what will be the lasting effect of that? Will these people all just come back to the city and begin to do everything they were doing? 
Will the people who employed them, uh, you know, just go back to business as usual? Will they be more compassionate? More important, will there be policies on the part of the state or the corporate, corporate world which will recognize that these people are, you know, precarious, in a state of precarity of remarkable scale? I have to say I am not optimistic, given my view of places like India and people are governing them. Uh, I'm not optimistic that there will be radical new views about care, compassion, income, equality, caste, discrimination. I fear that the best we can hope for is a return to the previous normal, which is just regular casteism, racism, as opposed to some intensification. The thing about the great, the people who have shown a great path, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, even Merkel, you know, uh, Finland, they are societies with a very different uh, problem of inequality, justice, wealth, etc. That's the plain fact. So they are to be congratulated, they'll be celebrated, but there's not much takeaway, I think, for societies who are very large, very unequal, uh, deeply admired in long histories of racism, casteism, colonialism, anti-women policies, and not just policies, I mean realities. So in those places, I must admit, it's very hard for me to know how the good news of these smaller, more privileged societies can translate. Uh, South Korea, you know, wherever you go, these are very small, relatively well-off places. The outliers here are places like Cuba, but I don't know enough about them. What I do know is they're small. Mm. So you can't take Cuba's political economy and transpose it to India, you know, or to Egypt or Nigeria. So Arjun Padurai, thank you so much for joining Freshhead. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Well, I can only say thank you very much for being patient with the process that led to this finally happening. I'm very happy to uh, talk with you in this open-ended way and to share some thoughts which are like many of the thoughts that many of us have in this day and age, not preformed or well-developed, but come out of my longer-term preoccupations and are kind of... Uh, my responses of the moment. Thank you, Will. Arjuna Padurai is a professor at New York University and the Herti School in Berlin. His latest co-written book is entitled Failure. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. All U.S.-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.